Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to our panel. Um, we will be discussing emotional well-being for teens and families during cancer and COVID, looking specifically at intersectionality, um, Black families' lives, and being LGBTQ during um, cancer and COVID. Uh, so we'll be talking about various issues related to emotional well-being, and I am so delighted to have with us here several experts coming from various um, inter intersectional aspects of well-being uh, and creativity. So um, I'll start and introduce everyone briefly, and then I'll hand it over to our host of the panel. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Sharon Francis, and I'm the executive director of Wellbeing Studio. We created the podcast Ash and Feather, a bird girl and her father's cancer, which is about a black family of a teenage daughter named Phoenix and her two dads, one of whom has brain cancer. Um, I'm happy to announce that our host today is Carl O'Brien Williams, and he plays Daddy and Eagle. So he'll be taking over after I do brief introductions. Um, the reason for this podcast is that uh, Wellbeing Studio is committed to the emotional well-being and open communication of families during cancer and other traumas and hardships. And our goal is to represent diverse voices and to have uh, resources and experiences available that are responsive to the communities we work with. And um, so we find it really important to represent stories of people of color, stories of LGBTQ communities and families to uplift families and show our resilience in our journey to cultivate mental health and emotional well-being. Um, so we have seen through COVID and uh, the overrepresentation of people of color um, in cases, hospitalizations and death in COVID. And we know that also that LGBTQ communities are at higher risk for COVID because of care barriers and higher rates of cancer and other chronic conditions. All of these, um, all of these issues relate to the longstanding disparities in disease rates and the treatment for cancer and other illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, and asthma in people of color and LGBTQ communities. COVID has unearthed the social determinants of health particularly around barriers to care, services and support, issues related to poverty and housing, issues related to bias and discrimination um, that affect our overall well-being. And so at the end of Minority Health Mental Health Awareness Month, which was in July, I'm so excited to celebrate um, the thriving communities of, um, of families that are here in the United States and are, we are struggling for, for the rights of all communities. So um, with that, I'm very excited to have this intersectional lens on the impact of trauma on people's lives and to be able to discuss them in detail based on the professions that are here represented by these wonderful leaders. So we have um, Dr. Natalie Kelly, who is a neuropsychologist from the City of Hope. We have Ernesta Wright, who is the executive director of the Green Foundation. Lauren Carson, who is the executive director of Brown Girls Smile. And Carl O'Brien Williams, who is an educator and theater maker. And as I mentioned, the voice of daddy or eagle um, in our Ash and Feather podcast. So I'll turn it over to you, Carl. Thank you very much, Sharon. And we just want to start right off with uh, the first part of this to talk about well-being and creativity and to really look at mental health. So I just want each of our panelists to introduce themselves and the work that they do and how that centers uh, mental health and the people that they encounter um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so I want to start things off with Ernesta Wright. Hello, everyone from around the world, just in case you're all over the world. So I bring you greetings, and it's a pleasure to be along with this panel and to be able to share our, our perspective in the community-based world. We consider ourselves at the local, local level, and so we 
feel and see from firsthand perspective of how COVID-19 impacted individuals' lives as it impacted uh, business owners, self-employed uh, individuals, independent contractors, as well as those who don't have health coverage or even homeless. So, but how do we take care of the overall well-being we put into action right away when we heard about COVID-19 without any funding in place that we put a list together for uh, individuals as well as uh, counties that we served in Orange County as well as in Los Angeles. We put a, a, a hard copy because we do realize in some communities that technology and getting information rapidly, hard copies is sometimes is still the best method because again, we're dealing with technology, um, internet issues as well as the influx of all things that's happening. So that's what we did in place, uh, contacted our faith-based partners and our community-based partners to find out what they were doing now. How are they going to help and support individuals now? And so we were able to get that information and put a list together right away to be able to disseminate it electronically as well in hard copies. And yes, we still use the US mail because that was the best method, you know, still for some communities. And so that was the overall well-being that letting people know how there was an organization in place that understands where they are and that we wanted to serve like a command center to maybe help um, calm some fears. And so we actually even called it Stay Calm and Stay Informed so they'll know that we are constantly sending messaging out to be able to help their well-being. And then uh, another thought, and then I'll have and give it back to Carl, was that in May, once this occurred, that we brought in um, therapists, we brought in um, uh, counselors, we brought in uh, uh, psychologists to start asking um, them what are they experiencing or what they're hearing from their clients. And then we put a, a virtual meeting together uh, at least three times. And then we also included the health component to actually make sure that people who did not have health coverage to let them know we're also there to be able to help them with their health needs so that they would get testing, that they would know that it is not hopeless situation if they are caught without health coverage. So that was some of the, the well-being to let them know that there was a, a community stronghold there in communities to help help getting the message out and collaborating with others to make sure that people understand there is um, hope and that their overall well-being um, that organizations are already in place to help in the system, even though we're all struggling ourselves. So that was the positive side of it that we felt that we were able to do um, rather quickly as an organization. Thank you so much. Uh, can we go to, let's have Nat Natalie Kelly talk to us a little bit about what you do uh, with City of Hope and how that centers well-being, creativity in the community and uh, mental, health, mental health. Good morning, everybody. I'm happy to be here. Um, yes, my name is Dr. Natalie Kelly. I'm a neuropsychologist at City of Hope. So that is a specialty of psychology um, with extra training in cognition and cognitive functioning. Um, I focus primarily, really actually across the lifespan, but a lot of my work is with pediatric um, and adolescent young adult populations who are um, diagnosed with cancer and who are persons of color. Um, I'm open to anyone, of course, who um, comes to our institution who has specific concerns related to their cognition and often find, um, of course, as a psychologist working directly in mental health issues as they relate to someone's ability to think and process information, to remember, to recall, um, at many different stages, really, across the cancer journey. So beginning, I see patients um, who begin, who may have issues or concerns prior to, for example, a procedure such as transplant, those, for example, also who are in the midst of education, um, throughout schooling, any point in schooling who may be having difficulties with learning and need additional support and evaluation and, do and documentation of their cognitive, um, the cognitive impact of their treatment. And then for survivors, for example, um, who go on to live lives but may still have challenges um, with cognitive um, concerns in impacting their daily functioning. So um, many times the, the I guess to use the word intersection of cognitive functioning with their psychological well-being is 
very apparent um, and that actually many of the cognitive concerns sometimes can actually either be exacerbated by someone's mental health status um, or that actually those issues may even derive from someone's level of uh, depression, for example, or level of anxiety. So I have the wonderful opportunity to, to do what I've always dreamed of doing. I am a neuropsychologist. That's what I wanted to be when I was in college and happy to be a part of this panel today and answer questions and share any knowledge that I have. Fantastic. Uh, so Lauren Carson, executive director and founder of Black Girls Smile Incorporated. Tell us about that organization and the fantastic work that you've been doing around well-being and creativity, community development, and mental health. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for the introduction, Carl. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Lauren Carson, um, executive director and founder of Black Girl Style, Inc. Um, we're a relatively small organization that focuses on mental health literacy geared towards young African-American girls. Um, we really focus on self-care methods and coping skills. We found through focus groups, research, and our participant pool that in many cases, um, young women of color and specifically within the African-American community are not educated about what mental health is. Um, very common warning signs and symptoms of mental health difficulties, how that impacts your decision-making, um, your academics, your relationships, whether romantic, with your family members, with yourself, um, and the support aspect. Um, in many cases, um, the intersectionality of any illness or any dif health difficulties, whether it's mental or physical, um, there's a component where you feel very alone um and you feel very isolated and what we do with black girl smile is create a community and really support the mental well-being of young black girls um, that we're finding are too often um forgotten and their mental health and mental well-being are not um, of focus um, in our educational system in communities and society um, and we really try to create that space with black girl smile i also share um, a little bit more about my personal um, mental health journey um, with two suicide attempts and struggling with clinical depression for over 15 years now um, under the moniker Living Lauren. Um, where we really find and where we're really focused on the intersectionality of mental health, race, and creativity right now is bolstering coping skills and self-care methods. Um, what we're finding right now um, during this time and as a society as a whole, um, there's a lot of trauma um, everyone is dealing with different aspects of how this pandemic health-wise is impacting them and their community, but also many of the racial issues that we're dealing with as a country and as a world. Um, and we all have different feelings and emotions surrounding that. Um, and creativity is one of the biggest ways that we can cope, that we can tap into our resiliency, um, and how we can move through these experiences in a healthy and positive way. Um, so creativity is really at the core of what we focus on with Black Girl Smile because too often um, African-American communities as a whole and minority communities as a whole um, struggle to find adequate um, access to care. And once we do have access, receiving the right care um, so there's a lot that we can do personally and as a community to really bolster these self-care methods and these coping skills that are really going to be key to working through individually and as a community some of these experiences that we're currently having. Fantastic. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, your organization and these coping skills, it makes me now think of the Ash and Feather podcast written by Sharon. And uh, for those of you who don't have a chance to see it, please uh, listen to it. Uh, did lots of platforms and we'll share that information challenge share that with you in the chat but it does center a black family uh, Phoenix the, uh, this young girl and what she is going through and uh, you know her father has cancer so I think this is a, a great time to talk about the stigma the kinds of stigmas and silences uh, that exist within families and especially uh, our black indigenous people of color uh, you know, a, a lot of us uh, culturally just have been either taught or maybe just not taught. We don't talk about it, right? And that's something I, I'd love for 
uh, the three of you to, to just talk about um, in your work, uh, you know, and we, to speak a little bit about what have you seen and how you've seen this sort of silence around um, cancer, how that's come about in your work and, and how that's affected uh, the persons that you've interacted with. And we can go round robin like we did before, or people who's like burning can just step in. <laughs> okay, I'll take that if you don't mind, Lauren, at this moment. That uh, the Green Foundation's been around for 20 years, and that's where we started with cancer awareness in the African American community. And we started with women who um, was um, diagnosed with breast cancer, and a lot of uh, commonality was it wasn't able to talk about it, or their issues were not being addressed. Um, and any support group that they were attending, they weren't sure if they were getting the right adequate care. Uh, uh, care. And so for uh, 20 years, for about 10, 15 years, we had a support group of bringing African-American women um, together who had been diagnosed with um, breast cancer. And then to talk about and being able to have a, sh a sacred space that they're able to share. And this one story, as a matter of fact, um, I just spoke with the 80-year-old just yesterday because we're going to be doing virtual breast cancer um, uh, meetings again because of uh, what's going on and they thought oh what a great idea to start them back up again because they're all are healthy and thriving but they also want to be a support to others but this 80 year old woman just told me on yesterday that she able to repeat what she learned in um, one of the support group meetings uh, 10 years ago and that was to be able to take um, leadership of her home care she didn't think that the physician uh, her oncologist was giving her the attention and that it wasn't really right for her. And so she took a bold move and asked for another doctor and she sent a letter to the administrator and demanded that that was not a person who was on her team. And she said she never forgot that and that she felt that by being that bold and had the tools and the space and the wherewithal knowing that she could do that, that gave her power. And the same person, when she first came to the support group, that she was not allowed to talk about her diagnosis in her family. So this is an 80-year-old, so uh, Lauren imagining the adolescents and individuals with cancer. This was a woman who, she was 75 years, when she, 75 years old when she came to the group. But she says, I cannot talk about my cancer diagnosis among my siblings, which was like eight or nine. And, and she was forbidden. She thought that she was letting them know so they know where she is in her journey of health, but they asked her not to say anything. And so she was uh, felt alone. And so we gave her that outlet to be able to have a sacred space to share. And then I do have to say after six or seven years, she decided to go and get um, breast reconstruction and now her daughters are hating on her because now her boobs and she doesn't have to wear a bra and so they just can't stand her so she went from not having a support from a support of being able to be a person a woman who she felt that she was to bring herself back to wholeness so she's liberated and and we'll tell you in a minute she doesn't wear bras anymore because she doesn't need to so um her journey and her life journey was a positive of being in a space of well-being that she made the decisions for herself. So that's one of the stories that was definitely apparent that I get a chance to really share with everyone. Anyone, Madeline? Yes. Um, so having the opportunity, the unique opportunity, I think, to um, address and to talk with patients about uh, specifically issues that relate to their cognitive function, really is the center for how they get through a day. Um, I've definitely had opportunities to, to help patients understand, youth, adults to understand and um, develop their own insight around um, how these, that these aspects are real. Um, sometimes patients may feel like I, I'm just absolutely losing it. What, where am I even going? Where am I, um, I thought this would be over, even the emotional wave that tends to come after um, treatment in the phases of, survi of survivors, how that can manifest in cognitive ways where they thought, I'm over this, I, I, we're done with treatment, I'm a survivor. I, um, having the unique opportunities um, to really highlight and say, you know, really, you have moved through so very much, but let's take a look at where some challenges may still lie and giving them the opportunity to have insight about themselves and then be able to share that with others because oftentimes cognitive issues may um, 
drive conflict in families um, with survivors where, you know, we're running, we've already told you this, or you should be over this by now, like we've been through this with you, can we just move on, you know, um, and realizing and giving them opportunity that you don't have to be quiet about those things. This is, I, I feel um, really blessed to have the opportunity to validate their experiences and say, no, there's actually, there's, there's a lot going on here. And if we can name this and we can define this and we can help you get an idea of what this is and giving you um, the encouragement and the kind of opening that door. So you can talk about this. You can share this with your family. Uh, you can share this with your loved ones and friends to help understand um, for them to understand where you're coming from and, and where you're where you are still moving through. Lauren, how different is it for teens in particular and teen girls uh, dealing with this? What kind of support systems do you find that they need and in their families? Um, so I think it's echoing um, what we heard from Anessa and Natalie. Um, Self-advocacy is a huge aspect of it, um, especially when we're working with um, young Black women. Um, there's a lot of negative statistics in regards to healthcare outcomes. Um, so we really do have to be very present and educated and advocating for ourselves, especially in healthcare settings. Um, another aspect that we really focus on speaks to um, what Natalie just spoke about, um, really creating space for young people to talk about their emotions and their feelings and to be able to voice those, give them space, honor them. Because in many cases, when a traumatic experience is going on within your family, um, you want to hold that in. Um, and that goes to kind of the third part that we really focus on is breaking down some of the generational trauma and stigma around um, talking about things, like just being candid, just talking about things. Um, there, there's kind of levels to this, as, as we talk about with Black Girl Smile. Too often our ancestors were focused on very um, immediate needs where um, their mental health and how they process things and how they navigated the world um, from an intellectual and conceptual um, standpoint, were not that wasn't that wasn't in in focus. Um, and now we have that space, and we have to create that space um, for us to talk about the things that have happened in our families. Um, for us to not focus so much on needing to be strong black women or strong black people or the mules of society. You hear all of these various things that we start to internalize at a very young age. Um, we're finding young women who have, you know, cancer um, within, let's say a grandparent or something like that. And they're not feeling comfortable expressing the things that are going on with their family. They, you know, it's just not talked about because that's how things are done in the African-American community so long. So we really have to break down some of the stigma, talk about this generational trauma and start to work through those, not just on an individual level, but on a community level. Um, because what we're finding too often is we can work with these young women, but if they're going home and their parent is struggling with a mental health issue, um, you're only tackling a very small portion of the puzzle. Um, so we have to make sure that what you guys are honoring here in the podcast and on this panel is that this is a community and family issue. These are things that have to be dealt with on various levels, not just on the individual level. So the self-advocacy, the naming emotions, giving honor and space to emotions and feelings, but also to work through some of the generational trauma and stigma within these communities of color are really key to um, navigating some of these difficult situations. I, I want to talk a little bit about something uh, that I always use in my practice as a teacher, uh, which is the reflective practice, right? Because the room, the room is always filled with uh, people with lots of stuff in that backpack. You know, the question, what's in that backpack? You don't really know. And just this idea of you're in a space of learning and then unlearning everything so it's just like not making the assumption so that therefore leads me into like intersectionality because if i'm dealing with a whole room where i've got 30 or 40 people uh, and, I, and i use people because that's something that i have to now use that language right because language is important when you talk about like all the trauma that 
that we're carrying and that can come from our own families and our own culture. But it's something that now we are faced with unlearning. So, and, and this is for everyone, it's, uh, you know, looking at how different communities um, like families of color, like LGBTQ families, uh, have been uniquely impacted by COVID. And many of you touched on it, but if you could go in a little further with just what you're seeing right now in terms of this transition, some of the, and you can name a challenge or you can name a strategy that you're working on. It doesn't have to be something that worked because oftentimes as a teacher, uh, a lot of things are trial and failure. I could try, you know, I walk in, the lesson plan's out the door, or I realize that after I've taught it, okay, I just think I ruined like about half of the class life a while ago. And I got to go back tomorrow, apologize, um, be vulnerable, admit where I went wrong, including sometimes I have the tendency because I started out teaching, you know, elementary. I'm now in community college. I can't be calling these people girls and boys. That's not, that's not, that language is, is, is not right right now. Uh, so just share with us something that you're either working on to deal uh, right now in your practice with intersectionality, all these different people that you're dealing with, uh, that is going through COVID, going through mental health issues, and how all of that just kind of comes in a mishmash. So it could be a challenge, something you're working on, something that worked, or something that didn't, and what you learned from that. I'll take a, a shot at this at this moment, that what we're doing right now is pivoting uh, online, as well as being amplifying our voices of getting uh, information out about prevention and wellness and where to go to get it, and especially it compounds the issue because now the complexity is, if they don't have health coverage, now what? If it, we're dealing with culturally competency, so what COVID-19 did was illuminated and amplified what a lot of researchers already knew about the disparities in healthcare. So when the, when the stats came out, those of us in healthcare, we weren't surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised, and I know Dr. Kelly wasn't surprised because it's been there for so long. And so now it's systemic. So I'm, I'm thankful that the tipping point occurred. Now it's out there that it's not covered, that this is research that's been done for a number of years. And so we've just been pivoting and that uh, making sure that we're giving the people and listening to what they're asking for. And so it is mental health and the individuals, even with cancer, I even have a medical doctor who had to literally scream at her own provider. And she is a radiologist because she is a, a woman of color. She literally had to fight for surgery for herself in the 21st century and this was only like six months ago and this happened to her so this amplifies what our work is being done of making sure the intersexuality for us is our community health advocacy program that's been around for eight years where we doing that self-advocacy lauren where we're working with uh, university and college age students to be a part of um the community health advocacy program where they're being trained literally i'm in uh, uh, african-american communities and neighborhood actually seeing research for themselves and so a lot of the students who are part of it are 99% uh, are uh, students of white and Caucasian or non-black, but they get a bird's eye view. So we get a chance to let them know firsthand from their own lens, how to learn from culturally, how to be able to understand for themselves. So what they hear on TV, what they read about, now they have their own pers uh, perspective. So now we're talking about the old, we're working with the old, the prevention and the wellness, but we also coming back up for the self-advocacy for uh, young adults. We don't want you to get cancer. Then we're talking about it rolling back. So we're trying to uh, uh, reduce the gap by now focusing on community health advocacy for the last eight years for personal development, professional development, uh, how to be an advocate, how to be able to um, speak for themselves and also literacy is an issue and that we are that's something else that we have to talk about making sure that people have the right language when they are seeking care and so that's another area i know uh, dr kelly could go right into that so when lauren when a young person is asking for help 
how can they articulate that? And even adults who's having a problem of articulating what their needs are. So that's another a layer of what we're uh, dealing with. But for us as an organization, as a community, we're reaching out to different sectors, bringing in uh, professionals from the medical as well as um, learning from academic area, personal development of how do we bring all of that information from a knowledge-based, evidence-based approach to educate, educate, because we want to roll out at, uh, advocates because it's going to take a fight. It's going to take years. And so we're just trying to prepare everybody at the same time. And we're using this technology right now, using this as this platform. Um, I would say a black girl's, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, 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 please jump in, jump right in. Yeah, I would say um, kind of two-pronged uh, response. Um, with Black Girl Smile, we're taking a similar approach. Uh, we're definitely having to pivot some of our programming, uh, focusing on taking a lot of our programs online so that we can reach more participants during this time and really meet the needs um, as far as mental health literacy support and really focusing on bolstering the self-care methods and coping skills. Um, we also are um, rolling out some crisis uh, resources as well, such as therapy scholarships, focusing specifically on young African American women um, of college age. Um, and then from a personal standpoint, for me, it's, it's grace and empathy have been kind of my key words during this time. Um, you know, we cannot always put ourselves in the shoes of another person and understand, um, as you said, everything that's in the backpack. I'm not going to always know what's in someone else's backpack, but I can realize that I know what's going on in my life and I know that it's a lot and I have to give myself grace, but I also have to give others grace as well. Um, mindfulness, I think has also been quite key right now um, because there's so many things going on. Um, anxiety and overwhelm are kind of running rampant um, on an individual level when I'm talking to friends and family members, but also with a lot of our participants. Um, they're talking a lot about what's happening in our nation, where we're going to be, like, wh you know, where the world's going to be, and that can all be very overwhelming. Um, so we're working on rolling out some programming around mindfulness so that we can help our participants um, really focus on the present um, to kind of assuage some of that anxiety and overwhelm that they may be experiencing. But really, um, kind of as Ernesta mentioned, um, focusing on kind of our core tenants, which is focusing on um, early intervention and prevention, um, but also um, providing some crisis needs at this time as well. I wanted to share a little bit too, to um, connect with what you're doing, Lauren, um, when you mentioned creativity and mindfulness. Um, Wellbeing Studio focuses on uh, personal creative experiences and um, and using resources that cultivate personal creativity in order to support emotional well-being of families impacted by cancer and other traumas and hardships. And um, I wanted to uh, give one example that happened in our creative arts workshop on Thursday. We worked with Sarah Trail, who's the founder of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. She's absolutely fantastic. And she... Um, I'm wondering, let me check if I, if I can, there we go. Um, so she uh, um, facilitated a workshop in which the participants focused on social issues that were important to them or personal issues that were important and expressing those in quilt blocks. And um, each person had their own um, story that they thought about, something that was important to them. I focused on my drawing for a quilt block, it's like a 15 inch square um, about hidden disability as someone who's suffered from depression and anxiety since I was young and now with cancer. On top of that, um, it's been really important to me to, to think about how to advocate for understanding what different, um, you know, people with different emotional issues are going through um, including like panic. I almost like, could I cancel today's panel? Cause I was so scared and I had so much anxiety and I was like, I just said, no, no, we're going to do this. You're going to overcome your fear. You're going to overcome your fear, but that's not something you could necessarily see behind my smile. Um, but it was something that for the last, you know, three hours, I was really, really, really struggling with. 
Um, but so, so that was my quilt block on Thursday. Um, after the workshop was done and everyone was saying goodbye and closing off Zoom, um, there was a little girl who, who was the last person to log off and I got to talk to her and I asked her, she, um, she's um, African-American um, or black and as the Washington Post has come out with um, their criteria, they're using black with a capital B in order to um, be inclusive of the black diaspora. So that was, um, that's an interesting for me, an interesting distinction that is important to, um, you know, like the, the BIPOC acronym and also to the way we talk about language, Carl, and reflections you were saying about language and, and being emergent and reflective. So she's um, a, a black girl and um, this matters to her topic um, as intersection as our identities always matter to the topics we're concerned about. So I said, what are you gonna draw about on your quilt block? And she said, I'm gonna draw myself with my hair and I'm gonna ask them to make my hair, the embroiderers finish the block. I'm gonna ask them to make my hair really textured. And I said, what, what were you thinking about when you came up with that story or that picture? And she said, well, um, a lot of people who aren't black just come up and touch my hair. And that happens a lot to black girls and um, I don't like it. And I said, well, what, what do you think about or how do you feel when that happens to you? And she said, well, I wish that it wouldn't happen, but sometimes I say things, but I'm a people pleaser. And so I don't, often I don't say something, but when I do, by the time I get the courage to say something, they've already touched my hair. And so that's an example of, for us, you know, using the arts and creativity. And this is, this was a workshop with mostly adults, you know, that little 10 year old man, she was in there and she totally understood that very high level analysis of social justice issues and how we can represent them in art. And she was there and she was engaged the whole time. And I watched her cause I could see everybody's pictures. And at the end she could tell me, and this is why I think we underestimate the power of education. We underestimate the role that schools could play in helping kids with being able to express social issues, be active in their own self-care, be aware of their emotions, because this little girl knew exactly what was a problem in her life. And she knew exactly how it related to race. And I was so excited to see that because for me, you know, we can look at numbers and statistics and those are really important for big picture. But when we look at those personal stories, like Ernesto, you shared with those, the, the folks that you're working with, when we look at those specific stories, we can really, really see the power of our organizations and the importance of the work. And um, so I, I'm just very thankful for all of you who are here to shed light um, and, and open up spaces to talk about, um, how we can work in different facets of community to um, make emotional well-being better. So I'll, I'll turn it back over. I just wanted to share that story. Thank you. Of course, definitely. Thank you for that. And I'm, I want to hear uh, from Natalie, uh, just give you an opportunity to just respond uh, to that last prompt or complex question, however I phrased it. But <laughs> So um, it made me think directly about how we are now currently trying to provide services in this time of COVID, right? We want um, our organization very, very quickly within a matter of weeks had to, there had already been some plans roughly in place regarding telehealth, but in terms of COVID, very quickly needing to determine how are we going to reach patients? How are we going to provide services that people need? Um, both obviously from a business perspective, but also from, you know, patients are currently still in treatment. These needs don't stop just because the pandemic has started. Um, and so that telehealth piece has really been a large chunk of how do you implement a new process of providing services? How do you make sure, even for example, on a technological level, that, you know, families of color have the broadband and have the devices and have um, the level of technology available to make these systems work and being flexible and still finding a way to being able to carry out and meet patients' needs in these times. And also as a clinician from, from my end thinking about um, how do I 
change this. If you think about typical neuropsychology, what just to give you an idea of what my general regular practice is like is sitting in front of a patient in a room for at least anywhere from two to four to five hours, depending on the referral question, for an intense assessment one-on-one. And with the room with the door closed, like everything that you were not allowed to do uh, under the current circumstances. So how do I um, really think through those pieces and you know there's not really anyone to guide me necessarily there's other organizations professional organizations that have had to reach out to um and it's it's a process it's a learning curve we're still figuring it out we don't have all the answers but thankfully in many ways i have been able to still meet patients needs via telehealth um modality um, maybe not with as much testing, but still being able to meet the needs. So um, that was, has been a, a big, big part of this new um, age that we're living in. Thank you. So um, one of the things I often ask a lot, uh, you know, there are two things I like to ask in, in, in panels. And as I think about the Ash and Feather podcast with Phoenix, our, our young woman going through it, and her two dads, one having cancer, and she develops this beautiful friendship. And Sharon also uses fables, you know, uh, as a part of that to bring in the magic. Because I, and I think, uh, Lauren, you touched on it with some, some, some of the young women that you're working with. A lot of times, uh, persons of color, Black, Indigenous people, you know, are expected to be tough there is this uh, assumption that we somehow, because of our history, can go through many things, and this idea of pain. And I think it's, 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 it's caused, among other things, a distrust of issues and organizations that represent spaces of healing and health and, and education. So there's, there's this, this distrust. So, you know, how do you get people there? How do you get people into the Zoom? How do you get, how do you, and, and some of you mentioned this already, but I just want to bring it back uh, more directly. How do you get, how do you get us there? Um, I think that it's, uh, there, there's, there's multiple things that have to be done. There's no one answer to it. I definitely think that we need to um, educate our youth on opportunities um, in, the mental health, in the mental health field, but also the healthcare field as a whole. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a family of doctors, um, but outside of that, um, we're not always exposed to these opportunities as um, uh, paths for education, paths for um, helping our community, um, and even paths for passion. Um, so I think, creating more spaces for us to educate youth on educational opportunities within the healthcare field are really key to increase some of these very, very, very low numbers that we see. I mean, within the mental health community, you're seeing between two and 4% as people of color. That's not even close to representing um, the overall population of people of color. We're, we're not getting into the field at the same rate, um, and we have to because the need is there, um, especially when you're dealing with mental health issues. Um, that's something that's very personal. Um, it's something that statistics have shown that most people want to initially see someone that looks like them so that they feel comfortable reaching out um, and expressing some of their experiences. Um, I think that cultural competency training is key, but I think that we also got to flesh out what that really means. Um, because in working with many of the mental health providers that I do, um, the, there's, it, it's not uniformed enough, um, and there's not as many opportunities for um, continuous uh, cultural competency competency training to ensure that the providers outside of this two and four percent are um, up to date on um, protocols, on experiences, on terminology. Um, as Sharon mentioned, the terminology is even quite fluid. Um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're educating our healthcare field as well on working with people of color. Um, I think the self-advocacy is a very big, big portion of this as well. And that's also having 
um, mental health providers such as um, Natalie, Dr. Kelly, being a part of these types of conversations so that they can see what someone like, someone within her field looks like and can feel comfortable um, really reaching out when resources are needed. Um, and I would say those are, those are a few things that kind of scrape the surface, um, but there's a lot of work to be done to break down um, these experiences that specifically the African-American community have um, when it comes to interacting with the healthcare system. Right, you're right on point, Lauren. I just wanted just to echo what she was saying and just make sure that one thing about the Affordable Care Act that a lot of people uh, often call it Obamacare, but it's a nice name, but I prefer to be um, uh, the Affordable Care Act because it's a law and people are able to stand up on that, that uh, part of the 13 essential benefits is mental health is a benefit that is available to anybody that has health coverage and those that don't have it that uh, depending upon your provider you have a minimum of three that's already incorporated in your health coverage and HealthNet has an ongoing that is no limitation so that's what we try to echo out into the community as well just use the benefits that you have and give you language learn to be able to uh, ask for what you're needing so people on the other side of the desk could be able to assist you and so that language is important so it is both sides of uh, educating the health professionals as well as educating the community and that is a difficult but I believe in just keep doing both to make sure that we could get those who are need desperately needing the services and that's already um, has uh, many years of disparities and big gaps how do we cover that and that's a rapid uh, engagement and rapid of conversation. And then one other caveat that I wanted to address something that Sharon had mentioned about making sure that the uh, conversation and the, uh, the voice of that 10 year old Sharon that oftentimes people say, well, how do I amplify the voice? How can I amplify the black voice? And just with that story that you shared. So when you're going around your peers and others that not understanding, tell that story. So now they'll know that when touching somebody's hair, it's inappropriate. So amplify that 10 year old's voice because any conversation that you have and it's relatable and it's a nice way of knowledge base because we're all are learning. So did you not know that touching someone's hair that black people do not like it because it is you're entering their space so I just wanted to illuminate that to give you a little bit more knowledge of being able to expand that so and to add to that 10 year old voice so thank you thank you I believe we have some questions in the chat uh, thinking of identification difficulties within the special needs population working in school sometimes I see children with autism on the spectrum disorder who also experience mental health issues Disregarded professionals tend to lump all behaviors under their primary diagnosis and therefore it's not treated. Do you have any suggestions or resources about uh, that's comorbid identification? Anyone would like to tackle that one. It's from Denise. So just to clarify the question, she's saying that um, sometimes behavioral concerns may be emotionally driven or are clumped together under the autism spectrum and just kind of package deal okay yeah. and yes and so and she's correct there are there are comorbid often comorbid um diagnoses such as generalized anxiety that may um accompany um, individuals who are also on the spectrum that do need to be treated and dealt with separately i think one part of that in evaluating that is making being being sure making sure that that individual has opportunity to see an autism specialist for example who may be able to clearly in their conceptualization both verbally with the family and also um with the school whether it's someone who works in the school system in the educational system or for example um, a developmental specialist who works outside of the school system um to be able to communicate that these are separate constructs and they require separate interventions and treatment plans. I find that getting um, a professional voice in some ways to be able to advocate for that child or clearly describe to parents. Um, written form is really important, very, very important documentation um, so that, so because that, that will travel with the child, right? And so in any other setting, classroom setting or other environment, that can be the reference point to say, you know, please understand. And also educating and encouraging parents to advocate for their child to say, 
we understand our child is on the spectrum. However, we also are very clear and understand that this um, comorbid condition, whatever it may be, is also present. And we have these specific um, interventions outlined or had that had been outlined for us um, that we are look, asking you to look into, asking you to provide, et cetera. I think having a, having a clear picture both verbally and, and again, in documentation format is essential um, to be able to have that communicated through these different settings for that child. I hope that's helpful. All right, thank you. Another okay. question. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, Sharon. Go ahead. Okay. I also wanted to to mention, as an educator myself, um, doing research in into um, disparities within education, uh, racial racist disparities within education that. Um, black boys in particular are disproportionately represented in special education. So um, if the if the education or the psych psychology, um, the psychologist in the system is not um, trained in cultural competency, there can be misunderstandings about um, the, for example, opposi oppositional um, defiance behavior um, or in other kinds of emotional um, identifications that fall under special education that could be related to other things that um, are in the child's life that don't have to do perhaps just with um, a psychological designation. So if we're looking at the ways that school systems have perpetuated um, racism and classism, um, they, the schools often don't have the systems in place to support children emotionally um, for example, in California, uh, school counselors are not required throughout the state, uh, and yet we do have, you know, if you look up just the school-to-prison pipeline, we can see all of the, the, the systemic uh, barriers to continuing education, as are for LGBTQ youth who are often pushed out and also um, have a disproportionate number of mental health issues as a result of not feeling uh, included about feeling um, just having identity crises in the middle of a community of, of teenagers who don't understand them and can often be very cruel. Um, suicidal ideation is the highest among LGBTQ youth. And so um, th maybe that can turn, Carl, if you don't mind, to the second question here. Yeah, about it's how to support my young trans grandchild from Therese. Thank you for that question. Definitely, we should keep on that vein. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also relates to when, you know, I really saw a, a broadening of the Black Lives Matter um, uh, protest movement turned into all Black Lives Matter and really um, foregrounding Black trans lives as part of the movement. And I think that that really relates to intersectionality and supporting um, kids and really thinking about what they're going through. So if anyone would like to speak to that, supporting young trans children uh, or teenagers? Now, we don't have experience as far as working with the adolescents, but I'm coming from a general cultural perspective that I have found in my own culture, in my own upbringing, that we are very embracing, um, no matter what site you're on, that we all have family members or friends that we know that may not come out, but I don't see that as a barrier in the black community as far as not giving them the support, I think it will still be added to what we, what consistently is still the barrier of access to, uh, to services, giving them the voice, they're misunderstood or identifying some of their own underlying issues outside of their gender. I don't see that as an issue of not getting them support because of what gender they identify as. I think for, for my, my experience and my perspective it just coming from the same as anyone else it's just another layer and another need that they may be needing because they identify with one or the other but it still is all incorporated of what currently exists is my perspective um, um, i can also take i can also take that um in working with um our participants um that do identify as transgender um, there's a few things that we encourage the family members to do. Uh, one, educate themselves. Um, that can be a joint process, um, but we do find that the youth um, that are um, going, that are experiencing difficulties around their identity, um, it can be 
it can be overwhelming to then also have to educate your family. Um, creating the space for them to open up about feelings and emotions and experiences is appropriate and necessary, but the education piece, um, that has to be done individually, but also as a family or as a community as well. So creating the space, education, um, and, and the other thing that we advocate for, um, especially when you're, when you're focusing on mental health is, um, trying to find providers that, um, have experience, um, with certain issues, demographics, um, because too often we're finding that when someone's first starting therapy, um, whether it's family therapy or individual therapy, they're normally looking just to make sure that the person is black or just to make sure that the person takes their insurance. And all of those things can be important. Um, but what's even more important to make sure that you're establishing a healthy and positive therapeutic relationship is making sure that that person, um, that their treatment modality and their treatment philosophies are also in line with your, your goals, um, your um, personal values at times um, that are going to be key in that therapeutic environment. So um, too often we're finding that someone just wants to find someone that's Black. And in many cases, you are able to find a Black provider but what's more important is that you find someone that you feel comfortable opening up to and that has experience working with that specific, specific demographic. Thank you so much. I believe we're, we're almost uh, just a minute of time remaining. And I know there are some questions in the chat uh, that primarily have to deal with uh, seeking resources and guides and suggestions. So uh, Sharon, I'm not sure if you have like some mechanism where we can get resources. I know, uh, our panelists, it, you know, you probably have these resources at hand and we can share out the information um, for the work that you do. But just in this very short time, I would love for just each of you, any, any last thoughts resting on your heart and on your head as we go forth and do this work. Natalie, we can start can... with you. Oh, who wants to go? <laughs> Lauren. Okay. Lauren, go ahead. Go ahead, Lauren. Um, uh, two of the things that I always um, like to encourage people to remember is that any sort of issue, especially when it comes to mental health issues, that that's not just on an individual level, but on a community level. Um, and the biggest thing that I personally, as, as an organization that we preach, is if you don't know what to do, the best thing you can do is to just create space. Um, in many cases, we don't know what to say when someone's going through things. We don't know how to act or where the resources are, and that's fine. Um, but to create that space for that person to open up to you and for that person to feel supported by you, that's one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle. I was just going to share um, in terms of resources, some that I frequently will uh, point out for our patients. Um, there's national resources for mental health through the American Psychological Association, um, very culturally competent and appropriate um, resources that you can find through that website. There is a specific tool for finding a, a psychologist or a therapist. Um, and then in addition, for our adolescent and young adult population, um, there are many resources going through the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, has a registry of many, many resources for um, AYAs, as we call them, going through cancer, um, people, persons of color, um, included, of course, um, that can be very helpful. So a search tool for that may also be, be useful. Ernesta, last thoughts, what's resting on your heart and on your head as we go forth? <laughs> I just want to say just thank you for this opportunity to be able to amplify the voices of, of Black African Americans. It is needed. I just want to make sure that everyone is understanding to show empathy. It is about the humanity of who we are, that we're pushing for the lives of people who need that voice and that be committed that it is talking about lives matter, no matter who, who they are. And so, and I believe in what the triage and this is 
uh, something Dr. Kelly, I'm sure you quite understand. I use that term in a local level with the triage. The triage is for whoever is bleeding the most gets the most attention. And I believe that the people who have been bleeding the most is African-American and Black. And I believe that that is, should be the forefront for anyone in any platform, that it should be the discussion and it should be amplified and it should have the opportunity to have the same impact as well as the resources to be able to do the work. Uh, research has done it, knowledge-based, evidence-based material is out there. It is to be able just to continue to amplify that lives are impacted by the non-work that we may not be doing and that we're continuously putting a blind eye, but continue to uh, amplify the voices of the voiceless. Their lives do matter. Thank you so much. I think that's a great way to end. I just want to thank you, Sharon and Wellbeing Studio, for bringing us all together to have this conversation, uh, centering Black mental health, centering Black families, Black Indigenous people of color, uh, going through a rough time. And I just want to encourage everyone to be safe and to uh, check out Ashen Feather. Check out the Ashen Feather podcast and learn all about a young Black girl and her two Black dads. <laughs> going through uh, cancer. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.